Memphis has a vibe, just as a really strong vibe. It wasn't like wasn't like a rejection of Nashville, although I'm required as a Memphian to not say too many nice things about Nashville uh, in one go. Um, there's just this, like, there's a mystic vibe over here. I don't know what it is, but I just fell in love with it. Is there much of a, a scene for you to participate in? Oh, sure. Oh, God. Tremendous number of musicians. And a very blended scene, age, race, style, all the ways that, you know, in larger cities, you know, music scenes tend not to be blended. You obviously didn't have trouble finding that mix while you were out here. I mean, that was always kind of one of the driving forces of, of your music. Certainly, yeah, cer- certainly of 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 my music. I, I mean, I've never fit in anywhere. So, you know, that's been a common theme throughout my life. You feel like you never kind of found your group of, of weirdos at any point? Oh, well, you, certainly friends. And initially, when I was a kid, I was working at the Knitting Factory uh, when it was in like an avant-garde jazz club. And, you know, those musicians and just people hanging out around there, I cottoned to immediately. Um, and uh, that was a great scene to be involved in. But, you know, just in terms of like going out into the world and trying to be part of a genre. I mean, I guess I picked rock by default in terms of which bins I was going to reside in. But, uh, you know, like I've always been like, a little bit too much like uh, Tom Waits for the hip hop world and a little bit too much like Tribe Called Quest for the rock world, you know, a little bit too stream of consciousness for like the singer songwriters, too heavy for some, too light for others. You know, I've always sort of had my own liminal vacant lot that I've put up my my tent on. Do you get a sense of why you ended up specifically in that rock band to begin with? Was it just because you were a white guy with guitar? Well, A, uh that's a that's a big part of it, but it also, I mean, it, I mean this is like pure business conversation. It's basically talking to labels and managers, they were like they were like, "Look, this is where you can actually carve out a career." And uh, in in the other worlds, you you will not find the same infrastructure in terms of, you know, how record stores relate to live venues and like all this kind of, uh, you know, near technical stuff. So but it was it was fine. You know, like I I mean, we played with fucking sunny day real estate, man. Like like we we were. You know, we went wherever they would take us. Do you get a sense that in those days in that point, I guess during that turning point that you could have gone full on hip hop? That's a great question. I mean, certainly as I met hip hop artists as the years went by, um, got along with them. Great. Um, did a tour with Redman That was just the, the joy of all joys, but the label, the labels wouldn't have extended their hand to me. You know, the, the, the infrastructure would not have, have extended its hand to me. That's for sure. Pete Tong came to the show once and was like, you know, you guys should go the remix route. And we ended up not doing it because um, it was just sort of challenging to our identity as a live band. Um, but I, I mean, I listened to tons of techno and rave and drum and bass and electro and what have you back then. So it wasn't like a leap per se. The remix route from the standpoint of actually like remixing other artists' tracks? No, of, of getting, of putting out a single and then having like 35 remixes by 
you know, different artists. We the one big regret I have is Masters at Work. We're going to do a remix for us, and uh, they were really expensive. There was like thirty five grand to do a remix, and we had to recoup some of that money. And it was before I realized that it doesn't matter how much money you have to recoup. You're never going to recoup. That's just the nature of the system. So I was like, oh, no, no, that's too much money. But, you know, those guys are like legends of house music and it is a genre line. I wish I had got a, a, a chance to definitively cross at some point. In some sense, because, you know, Soul Copping was, you know, obviously did have some some pretty big singles you were kind of coming up in the really the tail end of that era of record label so things would completely change just a few years later yeah we would turn into boy bands in like 98 or something which is when we had our only like technical hit circles was uh number 38 on the billboard charts so you know one hit wonder status achieved like genre wise it would turn into boy bands but then beyond that it just kind of the idea of major labels and, and of that being the way to kind of come up would also just completely transform. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, they, they definitely in the early nineties were, were very taken aback by Nirvana. Nobody had really seen it coming. Geffen hadn't printed enough CDs when the, the single was on MTV and, you know, the whole world changed in a moment. So there was just a lot of money going to whatever, they didn't understand because they were just hedging their bets and, you know, uh, into like 97 or so, you know, they started to realize that there wasn't, there wasn't like another Nirvana just waiting around the corner. And then they started, you know, taking surer bets on pop music, the big labels. You specifically, there's a tremendous amount of luck there that you came across at a time when they didn't really know what to do because again yeah. like you said earlier you're ostensibly a rock band but you've got uh you know electronic beats so they were like yeah let's sure let's let's throw some money at this thing and see if it sticks pretty much i mean we had we had um we signed uh to slash via warner brothers or warner brothers via slash and they were they were super gung-ho about it they 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 understood what we were getting at so it it we never had like a feeling of of imposter syndrome uh, in the context of the labels. You know, I remember at the time the Melvins were signed to Atlantic and uh, I, I had friends at Atlantic and I just I got the sense that like the label did not cohere behind the, the Melvins like uh, like Warner Brothers did around Soul Coughing. So you got the sense that in spite of everything, they actually kind of understood what you were doing and did a decent enough job promoting you and getting you out they there? They absolutely did, at 100%. You know, we fucked up a bunch of times, a bunch of times in ways that could have brought, her, brought us much broader success. Um, but they, they, were, they were great. I, I mean, my experience with Warner Brothers you know, belies every experience, uh, bad experience that I've heard of with, with major labels. I mean, one, one thing you, that, that I understood early on was that they want hit singles, that that's what they do. They're not looking for your moody art rock masterpiece. You know, they, they want a radio hit. And I was just always that kind of a person, really. Like, even when I was into, you know, predominantly into weirder music, I was always like a guy that was into the hits. And so I I feel like we adapted pretty good to that. Was Circles specifically written with that in mind? 
Well, the short answer is yes. The long answer is, I mean, you know, like I knew I was still me and I knew, you know, like I wasn't like, you know, the, the, the most perfect fit for, you know, alternative rock radio. Um, you know, our real opportunity was when we worked with David Kahn on Super Bon Bon, and it was when he had Sublime and Sugar Ray and Presidents of the United States of America and all these huge hits that were, I don't know if you remember the buzz bin on MTV, and uh, he was like the king of the buzz bin, and we didn't do anything he asked of us, and like totally blew that opportunity. And so, I mean, there was a certain, you know, sense of nihilism that I had after that experience. I don't know how, I mean, I wrote circles because I'd sort of given up on life and was just kind of like, you know, show up to the studio and like, I would put a drum loop down, do a vocal over it and then leave. And then, you know, whatever you guys want to do, that's fine. And then eventually the label started calling and being like, Hey man, uh, still uh, trying to write that single there. You know, there, and there was a lot of pressure from management and from, from the label. And that's when I wrote circles, but you know, certainly new people that, that like dissected what was happening at radio and like, you know, very mechanically tried to reproduce what they heard on the radio. I, I wasn't trying to do that, to be sure. What does it mean that you gave up on life at that point? I mean, it sounds like things were generally heading in your direction. No, well, I mean, it, it was just such a, you know, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I'm like, I'm trying to especially now that I've made this album that really does sound like soul coughing. I'm trying to not focus on the darkness of soul coughing, but it was fucking dark. And it just, you know, we really were there. We were with fucking David Kahn, you know, making the radio hit and just all the things my bandmates were just threatened by. And they were threatened by me, by him, by the, you know, I think generally by the prospect of success. I think I ended up in a band with, people that that just like no matter what in life don't want to be successful really and uh so my heart was just broken like we were so close and that was so so close to almost that you know it just it just destroyed me really was being successful super important to you at that point yeah i mean oh you know like i was I, i've i've always been very strong in my peculiar identity so i didn't i i don't know that i thought we were gonna be like the next stone temple pilots size band the next green day but sure i wanted to be successful and it was like it was one of those moments that like it it it, just the culture had like teed up what was necessary for us to have a hit single and we just we didn't do it we didn't do it. I talked to a lot of artists, people who really went through that ringer in the 90s, you know, certainly like 80s and 90s, there was still this, a lot of the idealism was still rooted in kind of the punk ethos mm-hmm. where, you know, there was still very much an idea in, especially in the 90s, that there was a problem with selling out. Now, this is completely gone out the window now, right? Now sure. that now that the only way to really monetize your your content, as it were, is to you know to get on a video game or or uh, a radio ad. But I mean, do you think that that was part of the disconnect there that people were sort of worried about selling out to the man? Well, I found that a lot of people in the uh, in the indie rock world came from money, and they 
had a choice of saying, I don't want to be successful. I want to be in this childlike state of pure artistry. And even even more so than the, than the artists, people surrounding the artists had this ethos that was really like disconnected from what I saw as reality. I never worried about cred, never worried about like, like one thing that would happen is, is you'd hear about a band getting chased by major labels and they would instantly put out a single with, with some indie label instantly put out a 45 and it was just so they could have had something on an indie label. And I just thought it was such bullshit. Like, like why not? Like the idea is to make great records. I mean, I, I, I believed in not making shitty records, but the whole stance you know, of purity is like, you know, from Bennington College. A lot of people do see a, a conflict between art and success. And, 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 and I can appreciate that from the standpoint of like often something that you feel like is a pure expression of what you do is not necessarily something that would break through into the mainstream. But, but it sounds like at the time you felt like there was kind of a brief window where those two things could coexist for you. Yeah, it really... One of one of like the stupidest things was um, uh, well, there were two two very stupid things that happened in, in rap succession. One was that we were supposed to be the single on the X Files soundtrack. You know, it's fucking nineteen ninety six. The X Files, biggest thing in the world. Yeah, biggest thing in the world. And the label was like, you have to hold your record to do this single. You have to wait. Chris Carter's. I mean, Chris fucking Carter is going to direct a video. Um, and my bandmates refused. They were like, you know, we're not holding anything back. And like, so stupid, like so stupid. The other thing was, uh, Michelle Gondry wanted to do a video and we didn't want to wait for that. And oh my fucking God, like how dumb. And somebody, somebody I know, like an old tour manager of ours ended up in a bar with him years later. And he was like, Oh yeah, I want to do this thing with crashing cars and this, that, the other thing. And you know, cause it was Michelle Gondry. Warner brothers would have given us the money. Like, and you know, we would have made this great thing or he would have made this great thing that we would be very lucky to be involved with. But uh, yeah, you know, just a, another of the great stupidities of soul coughing's mid nineties run. It's been a while since I read your book, but I, I seem to remember, you know, you meeting a lot of them kind of in and around the, the knitting factory scene. So you were really kind of meeting these weirdo jazz or quasi jazz musicians. Um, you know, it's, it's not something that would naturally mesh with the alternative rock scene of the nineties. No, I mean, I, I think what happened with these particular guys, I mean, you're right. I mean, ev- like literally everybody in the band had played with John Zorn. Literally everyone in the band had played with John Zorn. That that is already art, art, jazzy, jazz, downtown jazz. weirdo jazz. Oh yeah, oh big time. We'd all done. Um, in addition, to, well, I'd never actually done a gig with Zorn, but they all had, and they we had all done Cobra, which was this game piece. I mean, you'd have to look it up. It's a very complicated thing with holding up cards and making signals to a conductor and. Uh, once a month they did it at the knitting factory and it was kind of the center of, you know, that sort of little avant-garde music universe is, you know, everybody coming to jet together to do Cobra on the last Sunday of the month or whatever it was. But no, those guys, they don't want to be successful. And listen, so I wrote this album, Ghost of Room, and went to them and said, 
do you want to do this? We have an opportunity to do like a big crowdfunding campaign. This would be really easy. It'd take two months out of your You're talking time. about the last few years. This is a yeah, the recent. I'm talking about this album that's coming out this week. I went to Zolgothing and said, do you want to get back together and make this album? And just what I got back was like nuttiness. And it really was like, part of it was 2019 was the 25th anniversary of our first album. And I was like, listen, we do big tour. We can make some money. We can make a lot of people happy. And it, it, it just the, the level of weirdness in soul coughing is like, you know, I know a lot of people from fucked up bands. It's, it's, if not the most like violently, emotionally abusive, it's certainly the weirdest. Like the sort of the going, the going, going theory in soul coughing was that there were no songs as the songwriter in the band. I took offense to this. But literally, there, there, uh, so my manager wrote an, uh, an email to, you know, we were sort of like, you know, trying to like make a real case for this. And my manager was like, one thing to keep in mind is that you need to have all the songs written before uh, we, you go into the studio because, you know, you all live in different cities and, you know, because the budget will be less and one of the luxuries of the 90s. All the songs have to be written going into the studio. And this just set off a fury from some of my bandmates, one of whom said, Solkoving had no songs. We were masters of illusion. And it was it was like, there you go. That's why I can't be in Solkov. I saw that quote and, and I feel like it was like in the press release or the or their buyer or whatever around this record. Yeah. Like abstractly or spiritually, I can maybe sort of wrap my brain around it. But as somebody right. who like knows these guys. Do you get a sense of what the fuck that means? I think they didn't like the kid. You know, they were they they were all in their thirties. They were in a band with this twenty three year old kid, and they just didn't like that he had a spark. I thought things would be different now that we're all fucking middle aged motherfuckers. And you know, what's the difference between fifty and fifty seven or or whatever? But no, it's the it's the same weird battle. You know, but. You know, like I accept it, and I love the record that I made. I loved working with Mario fucking Caldado, and I don't honestly don't know if Soul Coughing 2019 would have made this good of a record. I think I certainly think that Soul Coughing Summer of 1993 would have had a shot at making this good of a record, but I don't know if, as you know, the the human beings we are today we'd be that that really that good of a band. I mean it sounds like when you, you know when you talk about the conflicts that it's kind of you and them, right? I mean that's right. the main source of the butting of heads. Right. I mean it was it it was nutty. It was you know so two of my bandmates worked with um Chris Whitley. Highly recommend a deep dive into Chris Whitley. He was one of the greatest artists of of that time period an incredible sort of bluesy singer songwriter why he he isn't remembered like jeff buckley's remember i don't know but he uh he, he passed away but so he had taken out my rhythm section and i bumped into him in a bar a couple months later and he was like those guys really see the singer as the enemy like what's going on with that like yeah, like he was just totally taken aback. He was like, he was like, yay. That must have been validating for you though. Well, I mean, validating and tragic. It's nice to like have somebody validate from the outside that you're not necessarily the crazy one or that you're right. not necessarily the problem. 
Right. Yeah. That that was that 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 had a, a had the effect you're talking about. Where I was like, wow, maybe I'm not insane. Were you in touch with the guys at all over the years, or did you just sort of reach out to them out of the blue? At some point after the the first book, I reached out to everybody and said, you know, I know it was tough to read that stuff. It was a it was a more substantial like amends to make to them than you know kind of your typical Twitter apology of I'm sorry you felt that way. But it was it, I, I very much was like that was my experience. I wrote my experience, and you know I know it was hard, and you know I hope I, I hope the the hard feelings aren't forever. We talked about this last time, and and I don't know how much the two things coincided, but you were going through the program, right? So that was kind yeah. of were yeah, those so two yeah. things. But specifically, were those two things tied together, this idea of kind of, of the book coming out and then making amends? Well, I mean, I think as a as a human being, I would have had to make those amends anyway. Um, certainly, you know, I'm like, I'm a pro 12 steps person, you know, I'm not, you know, going to like bang the drum and, you know, I'm not like, I'm not going to evangelize for it, but I certainly am a believer in it. In your life, there's just some people you you will you will never be able to make amends with because you may you know situations where you were kind of a dick and the other party was you know legit abusive. A lot a lot of people, for instance, if they if they have traumatic childhoods, they come up against this, and really, what most people will say is like. You know, you make an amends by living your life a certain way. Um, And I always sort of kept these guys in that category. And I don't know, I don't know what it was, but I I, I was just like, you know, I'm going to try and repair this a little bit. And to a certain extent, it it worked. I mean, there's just, there's so much weirdness in perception that, you know, there was only so much it, it could work. But I did, I did give it like a real solid shot. You know, in the same way that if you have a falling out with a family member, there's still that underlying bond there, right? And and, and sure. that's something that you want to take more effort to repair. And obviously, being in a band and you know being a sibling aren't quite the same thing. But like, there is sort of like a collective trauma, regardless. I mean, even the worst band experiences, there is a kind of emotional bond that happens. So I mean, and and, and you were still. There, I assume that there was still a closeness just from the standpoint that you all went through this kind of crazy experience together. Yes. I mean, the deepest friendship I got out of those years was with a guy named uh, Gus Brandt, who's a tour manager, who uh, now he he tour manages uh, the Foo Fighters. I don't know if tour manages the word, considering he's like bringing them into fucking stadiums and, you know, it's, it's, it's a highly evolved position from driving that's soul that nirvana side project i've heard about yeah. right yeah 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 exactly um and that and we talk about it all the time it's just like because he was he was kind of like x'd out by those guys as well so we had these years of like him and me sitting in the front of the van and we had this whole universe of inside jokes and it was this really special friendship so you know, and there's a my agent Frank Riley is a guy I've he's only he's the only agent I've I've ever had. He's very meaningful to me and important to me. 
So the real like emotional bonds weren't in the band, but you're right in that there is a shared experience that does have to be, I don't know if it has to be processed, but I felt like it could be processed. Was the acoustic stuff a a sort of a concerted effort to leave the past behind? Well, the solo stuff came from a night that I went to the club Fez in the basement of the Time Cafe on Lafayette Street, probably before your time. It was during, I believe, the New Music Seminar, which was, you know, the... CMJ. Yeah, it was like there were two in New York every year. First, you know, CMJ was in the fall and New Music Seminar was in the summer. And I went with our uh, our A&R guy at Warner Brothers, who was this like uh, very snooty, like like king of the indie rock snobs. And we sat there and um, this band comes out, got a weird looking like little guy for a singer. And, I, I you know, and I was just there because he invited me and... I was like, who is this? And he's like, oh, you never heard of them. This is the magnetic fields. And so, you know, and there was nobody there. And the thing about this club was it was deep underground. So you could hear the six train rumbling under you. And it was, it was, you know, it was the fucking magnetic fields. It was incredible. It was like just jaw dropping. Wow. This guy is basically Stephen Sondheim level songwriter experience. Right. So my mind's blown. Next up comes this other guy, this sort of craggy-faced looking grunge guy with an acoustic guitar and a little knit, knit cap on. And I was like, Randy, who's this? He goes, oh, you never heard of him? His name's Elliot Smith. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's my Elliot Smith. Like, you know, first the magnetic fields and then the Elliot's and then the Elliot Smith. No idea who they were. And, uh, you know, And that show just really changed my life. Certainly, there was a part of being a solo guy that was about just being independent, not just from a band, but just being able to, like, roam on the road and be, like, fucking, you know, corny-ass troubadour style. But that show changed everything for me. There was a snowstorm. uh, I think the next day, my memory, it's the next day, but I uh, went from where I lived in Fort Greene to the East Village and, like, trudge through the snow and you know the east village was totally silent there's like a foot of snow on the ground and went into a record store and bought get lost the album uh with uh christian brothers on it and you know i was off to the races yeah is that roman candle or xo which one no i think it's between roman i think it's just called elliot smith maybe oh it's a self-titled with the blue cover yeah, needle and hay on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is being thrown. Yeah, needle and hay. It wasn't so much that you you wanted to make sort of a one eighty from what you had done with the bands stylistically. It was really the experience of seeing what could be done with just a guitar. It was it was it was a choice made choice made out of inspiration. You know, looking back on it, I wish I had been a little bit more canny and figured out to just how to put just another band together with an upright bass player and a drummer and a sampler player. And, you know, stayed on Warner Brothers and, you know, popped out a couple more albums like that. But, like, I was on fire to be an acoustic guy. Like, absolutely on fire to do it. From the outset, when when putting together this this new group of songs that ostensibly represents this new band, I mean, that was something you, you could have just cobbled musicians together or, you know, you could have been your own recording act and maybe 
dealt with touring musicians later. Given all of the bad blood between you and the band, what was the impulse to to attempt to reunite with those guys? I just felt like it's it's something that had to be tried. I I don't know. I just felt like you know, 25th anniversary. And so the way I wrote the album was I, I got GarageBand on my phone and just started writing bass lines. And the only up sound I like on GarageBand is the upright bass sound. So here I was writing upright bass line. You know, I've got my Patreon page, do a new song every week for it, always fiending for new ideas. I went on YouTube and found the old classic Beats and Breaks Scarface CDs, which were, you know, this like, cornucopia of unlicensed breakbeats. So I started looping those and writing those and then the upright bass line. Started working with some rappers, just having them over and, you know, a couple guys from the unapologetic label here in Memphis and just started envying what they were doing. And then I sort of returned to that kind of like Tom Waitsy meets Fife Dog kind of thing that I was trying to do back then. And it all it all just dovetailed. Um, it wasn't like I, you know, thought like, well, maybe it's about time to go back to this. And, you know, maybe I made a progression. It was really like all these things came, came together. So at a certain point you're like, oh shit, I'm making another soul coughing record. Right. In fact, I, I've been putting, I put songs up on my Patreon and people were like, uh, wow, uh, really sounds like soul coughing. I, I thought you didn't like this. You know, so I, I don't think I noticed myself until, you know, well, well down the line. Do you feel like b- between the two, between the acoustic stuff and, and between soul copying and what you're currently doing, that one of them is more of kind of a natural state for you? I mean, it sounds because it sounds like you were just sort of naturally pulled back into that kind of music. The first time somebody liked what I used to do better than what I was currently doing was an early soul coughing gig. And I had been, you know, like on the anti-folk scene in New York and was like just dragging an acoustic guitar to these anti-folk cafe. cafe. It was at um, Chameleon at the time in like 91 or 92, whatever it was. And so soul coughing started blowing up and we had a a weekly uh, gig at CB's gallery that was blown up. And I invited my uh, high school friend, Carson Kreitzer there. And I was so proud of it. And uh, she saw the show and I was like, what'd you think? And she was like, Oh, you know, Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I liked it. Yeah. I, you know, really, really kind of, I really like that acoustic thing. I really, you know, hope you do more of that one of these days. I did an acoustic gig at, she lives in Minneapolis now, at the Dakota Jazz Club out there. And after the show, she comes up and goes, this is what you were meant to do. So almost as long as I've been playing music, somebody's been coming up to me when I do a new thing and saying, you know, that last thing you were doing. I mean, I did I did a, uh, um, a, a tour of all Soul Coughing songs in like 2013 or whatever it was. And I just relished people coming up and going, man, why don't you play songs from Hotty Melodic? It just like that, that was a, a, a great full circle moment in my life. In terms of number of people who have heard of it and, you know, number of people you've impacted, Soul Coughing is always going to be up there, right? I mean, you know, that was your big 
original success. So like to some degree, no matter what you do, it's going to be Mike from Soul Coughing. I mean, it's, it's, it's always going to be this sort of this presence that follows you around for better and for worse. I'm never again going to be a 25-year-old kid on a major label at a time when I was suitable for radio. That kind of sucks. I don't have a real problem with aging, but it is true that like, you know, you got to be 24 to be taken seriously as a as an artist. You know, I mean, so you're right. I'm not sure that's got much to do with soul coughing. I mean, I think if I'd made Haughty Melodic when I was 25, that would have been a big record. It's always going to be to some degree the thing that defined you because it was the thing that the most people heard and it was the thing that people heard first. Precisely right. Yes. It sounds like you haven't had a, any sort of issue with productivity. I mean, I talked to a lot of people and I, this has certainly been the degree, this has certainly been an issue with me, but you know, over the past year during all of this, it's been incredibly difficult to be productive. It's been difficult for me to even like enjoy music or, or reading to some degree, because there's just this sort of overarching cloud, but um, it sounds like you've haven't had a problem making music throughout all of this. I haven't had a problem until now. Initially, like I'm an isolator by nature and my whole life is about doing that Patreon feed of the new song week. So initially I was like running out of the gate and I was working every day. I literally have 35 songs backlogged to put up on Patreon. Um, And then uh, I had to finish my second book, which, you know, took a couple of super hardcore months. So I got that done. That was a lot of work. Then I went through this period of like, I was trying to learn how to produce other genres of music. So I was like doing these deep YouTube drill music tutorials, how to mix drill, like what the snare patterns are, you know, like which plugins to use. And there was about a month of that, then maybe another productive month. And then suddenly I hit a wall and I got up and I sat down to the computer and I was like, no, no. So, you know, the good news is I have uh, another album written from earlier in the year. Um, and I'm going to go into the studio with Mario and Scrap Livingston, my partner in Ghost of Room, uh, in L.A., soon as I get the jab, basically, is the, is the plan, soon, soon as everybody's jabbed up. But all I've been able to do is just sort of practice guitar, you know, like loop instrumentals and put them up and, and then just like practice my Leo Nocentelli, Catfish Collins, uh, you know, Ernest Wranglin imitations. Um, and then, you know, there's a, too much fucking time on my phone, you know, some, some books when I, when I can get my head around it, but yeah, I hit the wall. I really hit the wall. Do you get a sense of what flipped? I got into a relationship, like a COVID relationship that I guess I put more stock in that I thought I was putting in it. More emotional weight in it than... Yeah, like like I was like, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to go on for a long time. And it just didn't work. And, you know, I'm 50 years old. I've never been married. I've never had kids. So I frequently have thoughts of like, oh my God, like I missed it. I missed the fucking boat. You know, very dark thoughts. And I, I think part of it was you know, this relationship breaking up and just being like, well, there goes another one. Like there goes another shot. And, you know, I know I'm going to be able to make records when I'm 60, but I don't know if dating is, you know, uh, possible, feasible. When it comes to like everything that was going on 
in the world, you know, the pandemic, especially that, that because, because you were throwing yourself into all these creative projects that you were able to kind of push all of that depression out of your head. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't depressed until starting like in January. Like I, I was doing just fine. I put out an EP over the summer, you know, like motivated by current events, you know, which was an undertaking, like getting everybody to record remotely. And so I was like, I was like on fire for the, for the bulk of, of 2020. And certainly I got a lot done and I have to remind myself, like you really, like maybe it's okay to take a break, you know, got a lot done, but, um, but the, the feeling of depression and the feeling of inertia is tough so tough and i've just been like i think a lot of people think it's just them especially people who are like sort of isolators by nature and they work at home and initially we're like well this is great stay home all the time i i think a lot of us with that kind of mindset have suddenly found this this kind of crazy loneliness you know this feeling of exhaustion um, despite having done nothing, being really weary. So I've been, I've been talking to, to a lot of people about that and trying to like, you know, get like kind of a, a you know, consensus circle on uh, COVID depression. I consider myself to be an introvert, which manifests itself in, in, in different ways. You know, obviously I can talk to somebody I don't know, or I can go up on stage or do like a TV spot or whatever without a problem. But then if I go to a party where I don't know anybody, I'm just, I'm like that, I'm the guy in the corner. And it can be hard to reconcile that, you know, it can, it can be hard to reconcile because it, it does sound like you have those impulses too. It, yeah. it can be hard to reconcile being a guy in a band who is cool, just standing up performing in front of people or being on TV uh, and not realizing that like you are in fact an introvert and, and that, and that would like, and, and to me it was like, it almost worried me how well I adapted to the isolation of quarantine. Well, I'm really good at faking it in a social situation. Like I'm, I'm not good at talking to strangers, like initiating conversations with strangers. But if I end up talking to a stranger, I'm, you know, I'll light up and be friendly. And, you know, like um, I'm, I'm good at putting on the false front, which is not actually, it's not something I like have a problem with. It's just who I am. Slowly over the months, I've been talking to other people who initially were like, wow, this is fucking great, you know, like home, working, whatever. Um, and then I have I have one friend who still likes it, and it's a Rachel Murdy, who is the voice of Janine on Ruby Verum. Um, old, old friend of mine. She has a character she does named Gomo, who is a man who wears like the silver wig and has a mustache and wears a suit. She's always doing videos as Gomo. And she does a video as herself every day in the West Village of her dancing. She's done it every day since lockdown. Um, and we have a theory that she was directly parodied on SNL a few months ago by uh, Kate McKinnon doing this character that's like the dotty old West village lady, like dancing and being weird. And everyone was like, that's Rachel. Like she's doing an imitation of Rachel. And she had a little dog, which Rachel does. And Rachel, I talked to and She's like, Oh my God, I hope this never ends. I'm so thriving under this. Um, you know, but she's, she's like the, the last 
last person standing as far as I can tell. You mentioned the EP that you did before. And, you know, I know it's the one with like, don't like, don't touch this and, you know, and, and singing about wearing a mask and all that. Um, you know, usually, uh, especially with musicians, I find that they generally need some sort of distance between them and the subject matter in order to feel like they can tackle it. But it sounds like that specifically was you attempting to use music to kind of process the current moment. Yeah, I mean, it just it just poured out. And the fact that there was this undercurrent of paranoia, like the Q universe paranoia. And uh, I was, you know, like I was hearing a lot of like counter paranoia from, you know, friends of mine, super liberal who were like, well, you know who Q really is. And, you know, it, it was just like, and it was just in all directions, weirdness. And then like the weird kind of, kind of quasi excitement of the president saying something totally fucked up every day and like turn on MSNBC and like everybody's yelling. And I mean, you know, not for nothing. My depression coincides with no longer having to flip off the TV all day. It was certainly firing up some receptors in your brain, not necessarily the ones that you want firing up, but it was it was. um it was at least occupying us during the just long periods of boredom that have been happening over the past year. They say that gambling addicts get their biggest endorphin hit when they lose. So people look at gambling addicts as chasing money. Maybe they, they think they're chasing money, but they're really chasing losing. And maybe it's this kind of related thing where like the brain is lighting up at, at all the like anger and outrage and then when it goes away, there's like there's an addiction that's no longer being sated. I remember when Trump got kicked off Twitter. I just remember feeling like, oh man, it, wouldn't it be great to have a direct channel into this guy's brain? And we used to. Yeah, I wanted to know what he was thinking about being kicked right. off of Twitter, but because right. he wasn't on Twitter, you couldn't read right. the direct id that was his feed. Yeah, is the book another memoir? The book's another memoir. It came out in November. It's called I Die Each Time I Hear the Sound. And it came out in the middle of uh, of the pandemic and like totally flopped. And all my fans bought it, but nobody reviewed it because on the, the first book I was out on the road like all the time doing morning TV in Tampa. So, I mean, hopefully people are going to discover it as years go by, but it's a bummer. It's a bummer to to have released a book during during these times. What was the impulse to, to sit down and and write more about your life? Well, I knew I had the story. So, and I've approached both books and I may yet approach a third one, just telling stories. And you can tell them poetically, you know, by like beginning in sort of an undefined place and ending in an undefined place. You know, I've, uh, you know, it's like sort of weird, like Raymond Carver shit. Not that I would put myself on the same level but like that well, you compared yourself to tom waits you might as well compare yourself to ray mccarver right i, I can I, i'm stealing from tom waits <laughs> to make it clear to make it absolutely clear i'm stealing from him i'm certainly not considering myself to be his peer canon does music serve a similar function as far as like storytelling and processing some of those stories for you or are we talking about kind of two completely different sides of the brains here two completely different sides of the brain you know like you can um you know in a, a memoir or a prose piece you got to get from point a to point z um you know there has to be 
a through line, whereas you can write some pretty disconnected stuff in a song. And then when you look at it all together, you see like, oh, there's a, there is a thread here. And, you know, that's where you get your chorus from, or, you know, the, the, the song takes a weird turn. Um, it's a much more like intuitive kind of Ouija board process. If the first memoir was the kind of the, the drugs memoir, um, what's, what's the through line to the second one? God, um, maybe aging, aging, like the value of music in your life, the relationship to fans, which is fascinating and challenging. Yeah. I mean, it's very, uh, it does, it doesn't have like the same arc that the book of drugs has, you know, narratively because it's not a life story, but I guess you'd have to read it to really I, I, you know, I don't want to be one of those artists that refuses to describe his art, but I don't. I, That's why you have somebody else write the back of the book for you. Yes, exactly. The pandemic is probably a big part of it, but at the same time, you know, you think it's just an easier sell to say, "Hey, this is the book about when I was a rock star and did a lot of drugs," versus this is the book about kind of like aging and music. I mean, that's a harder. It doesn't have the same hook. Well, I think it, ha- it has a great title. I die each time I hear the sound. And I thought like when people heard the title, they'd want to pick it up. So I was really excited about that. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the, the drug, you know, fall and redemption story is an, is a narrative that's like the new boy meets girl, boy loses girl, rags to riches, um, you know, Prince pretends to be a pauper, you know, just standard. The five stories that everybody retells kind of thing. Yeah. I don't want to ask the, the this question, but I have to. What, what is the, what does the title mean? Um, so a, a through line in the book is, so there was a, a John Cage. No, it wasn't a John Cage concert, but in, you probably know about this. John Cale did it. John Cage um, where they played um, Vexations by Eric Satie, and they played it for 24 hours. And at the end of it, John Cage says he went home and fell asleep, slept for 12 hours, and when he woke up, the world was absolutely new. So there's a lot of stories about like the first time I heard a piece of music, an experience of seeing music, and then the tagline is the world was absolutely new. So it's about it's about that like idea of 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 personal change at the end of a song or however these songs these pieces of music affect us in these profound ways that you know science doesn't even know why we like music. Fixations was like that Eric Satie piece right where it was like supposed to take over like seven or however many days that nobody played during his lifetime and Cage might have been the first person to actually do it page long is like 32 bars and it says you know like and it's to be repeated 200 and whatever number of times he was very specific about it have you been able to recapture that feeling during the pandemic oh i haven't i haven't landed one during the pandemic 2019 i was really diligent about listening to my spotify um you know the the weekly recommends playlist and the and the release radar playlist discovering and, new stuff yeah just like and if you just and spotify i mean people have problems with spotify justifiably but in in the sense of uh, of a, a vehicle to discover music it has been amazing for my life you write it as problems especially when it comes to people getting paid but like 
it's kind of a miracle that we have access to basically every song ever written yes. at fingertips. And and the fact, you know, I and I have a list of like twenty songs. I think I put up a, a public playlist of songs that were just like life changing. I, I would say the most was a song called "I Can Fucking Tell" by an artist named Saint John, J H N John, and I just I, I I just fell in love with it. It's a super chilly, you know, like spooky, haunted soul tune. And I just listened to it over and over and over again and got chills listening to it. And, you know, that transformative experience, the world is absolutely new. 